What have you been listening to lately? The Voices in My Head. The Voices in My Head is an independent production and totally fan-funded. Please visit realgregellis.com and help support. Enjoy. to the podcast series, The Voices in My Head, where I talk to the artists behind some of your favorite characters and character voices from TV, film, and video games. For audio listeners, the video of this episode is available on my ThinkSpot channel. Please head over and subscribe to help support the show. Well, my guest on this episode is a prolific voice actor and Chopra Center University meditation instructor who's been voicing characters in animation, video games, anime, and Hollywood blockbusters for over 24 years. Wow. Some of his iconic roles are Dr. Neil Cortex in the Crash Bandicoot series, um, Major Von Reg in Star Wars Resistance, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, where Greymon in Digimon, he'll correct me if that's wrong, among hundreds of other well-known characters, including Batman, Poe Dameron, Han Solo, Dr. Doom, and countless more. He's also a Los Angeles-based meditation instructor and has been teaching primordial sound meditation since 2014. Lex Lang, welcome to the Voices in My Head. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's, it's War Greymon. Oh, War Greymon. War Greymon, yes. I just embarrassed myself there. No, it's okay. Um, it's all good. <laughs> first of all, thanks for being on the show. Um, You're very welcome. <clears throat> you were born in Hollywood and raised in Arizona, right? What was that like? Yes. Well, um, I didn't get a chance to really remember too much of Hollywood other than the street I lived on as a child. And But when I was about five years old, my, my parents moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, and that's when I went to school there, grade school, high school, and college. And then shortly after college, I moved back to Hollywood to uh, do some stand-up comedy and also go to the Musicians Institute, which is a, a, a vocational school for music in Hollywood. They have the Guitar Institute, the, uh, the Bass Institute, Percussion and Vocal Institute. And I believe now they also have a Producers Institute there. It's a, a one-year program that uh, it's a very intensive no vacations during the year it's a whole it's 50 50 weeks of schooling and what was that like do you remember your first uh performance or that first moment when you took to the stage and really felt like you were you wanted to do this for a career and a living and a livelihood yeah you know while i was in arizona one of the i guess uh milestones of of my life path was i was working in a little place in a mall oddly enough that was almost like a karaoke that you can take home with you it was called superstar recording studio and um a, a guy came in long-haired guy came in and he said at the time i had very long hair down to my uh, belt line and he came in and said hey man you, you look like a musician you want to jam sometime and i just started playing guitar and um he and I jammed together. We rented a little storage room, kind of what you would put a couch in and you know home belongings in. It had a plug in it. We it was empty. We we plugged our amps into it, and we it was like a, a real cheap rehearsal hall that we could play at. Anyway, uh, long story shorter, he eventually said that he was going to the Percussion Institute, and he thought I should um, try to uh, get a scholarship to go to the Guitar Institute. So I applied, I, I sent in my demo. I was, I was kind of eager to see if I would be accepted. And sure enough, I did get accepted. Um, uh, one of the kind of pivotal points for me also as a musician, I, I, I grew up as a stage actor, uh, all of high school and college. I, I was doing performances um, at, at the theater department. <clears throat> and um, 
I went to see a concert. I've been going to see several concerts, but I went to see the Bon Jovi Slippery When Wet tour at the Arizona Coliseum. And um, it was so amazing, just the, the grasp he had on the audience and the emotion that came through his music uh, that something changed in me at that moment. And I thought, you know what, I think I'm going to try for music rather than stage acting, you know. And, and um, at the time I was doing stand-up comedy as well a little bit. And uh, everything timed out where this guy that came into the studio, his name was Greg. Uh, he said, hey, let's go to L.A. So I applied, I got accepted. And within just a few months, I was on my way to living in North Hollywood to venture into... Uh, the study of music and um, that was a pivotal point for me and and I do remember at the Musicians Institute they had a they had a uh, class that was called rock performance and the feel uh, rock performance was basically a class that you would go to that would have a three cameras shooting your performance on stage it was full lighting full sound just like you were at a venue, like a large venue or a live performance where you were being filmed. So it would, it would get you as a performer a little more acclimated to having the other crew people around and having a lot of other things going on in the background while you were performing. And so I do remember my first rock performance and it just felt, it felt very natural to me and it felt very fulfilling. I, I remember thinking, yeah, I could, I could get used to this feeling of the lights and you know, it's a full audience because rock performance was also a class that there would be the students on stage, but the whole audience would be made of students as well. And then there'd be a critique by the instructors afterwards, just on little points of how to uh, present yourself on stage and, you know, what to look out for and that sort of thing. So it was always really good feedback at the same time as kind of having that boost of adrenaline from the audience reactions and, uh, and an opportunity to get my own music uh, in a form that was a complete band form, which was really nice as well. Mm, how did you uh, transition to become a voice actor? Interesting, interestingly enough, I was um, at the Musicians Institute and during my uh, year there, I became the spokesman for the school. And while I was the spokesman for the school, um, the school received a call from a director of a film called Rich Girl, which was about a band. Uh, it was actually about a girl who comes from a rich family and, and has difficulty with her father. And she ends up getting a job as a waitress and in a club that has bands playing. And I was asked to, as a rep from the Musicians Institute, come and show the actors how to look like they could play the guitar because most of them were not musicians and they really looked awkward in how they were holding their instruments. And, uh, so they needed somebody to come and show them. So while I was showing them, like, here's how you do a windmill and here's how you jump off the amp and here's how, you know, you look cool doing these licks. And if you're playing the lead and you want to lean or back up or whatever the case may be, um, the director said, hey, you wouldn't happen to be an actor, would you? And I said, as a matter of fact, that's really what I am, even more so than a musician. And he said, how'd you like to have the part you're showing this guy how to do? And I said, well, I don't want to take it away from him. But he goes, no, I'll make him a keyboard player. You just, you'll be the lead guitar player. And I said, fantastic. So I was, that was Taft Hartley and put into the Screen Actors Guild from that movie. And on that film. For, those, again, for those who don't, don't know, Taft Hartley is? Taft Hartley is when you have a particular skill that, maybe other actors don't have or actors need or the production needs what they will do is they will give you um they will qualify you to be in the union because of those skills instead of the standard way which is by being in several different productions and qualifying via that route so it's kind of a one shot into the union you know right away so so i got taft Hartlead and uh on that shoot i became friends with a guy named bentley mitchum who happened to be uh, robert mitchum who was a very prolific uh, on-camera actor in the 40s and 50s uh, it was his grandson and he is also an actor and um 
we became great friends, eventually roommates. And later, about a year later, he had a role in a film that was being shot in Vancouver called Susie Q. And the, the girl that was opposite him in the film who played Susie Q was a girl named Amy Jo Johnson. And Amy Jo, for those of you who don't know, um, was the pink Power Ranger. And um, so while we were hanging out, um, one night we had gone to have some sushi. And then after, after the sushi, um, sorry, uh, I don't know if you're still there. Are you still there? Yes, yeah, right, okay. so just Yeah, just pick up from uh, after we, hang on. Uh, I have it on Do Not Disturb, and I don't know why it came through. But, just, um, yeah, just pick up from uh, after we had the sushi. So um, one night, uh, we were all hanging out, and we went to have some sushi. And after we had the sushi, we decided to, uh, we were walking back to the hotel, and I started doing impersonations that were part of my stand-up comedy act. And Amy Jo said, wow, you'd be a great voice actor. And at the time, I really didn't realize the, the scope of what a voice actor could be because when I started, there was virtually no voice acting in video games because the memory capabilities on the consoles were very limited. You could barely get the music on the video game. Um, and so I said, what do you mean, like uh, commercials or promos? And she goes, no, 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 there's loop groups, there's... Uh, there's um, and there's animation, there's this stuff coming out called anime, which is just kind of starting, it comes you know, animation, original animation from Japan. And I said, well, gosh, I, I would love to, but I don't, I don't know the end for that. So she said, let me introduce you to the producer at the Power Rangers. So that's how I got my start, is by being in what they call a loop group for the Power Rangers. You, you mentioned loop groups. Um, we've worked on, countless shows together from animation to cartoons to video games one of the most fun sessions which went on for quite a long time we did many sessions that i ever recall was on a show that probably wouldn't get pitched in today's politically correct environment let alone developed community do you remember working on community and what that experience was like and maybe you could speak to that and, and what a loop group is for those who don't know <laughs> Yeah, Community was great. It was a TV show on NBC on Thursday nights for a while with Joel McHale as the lead. Um, uh, great show because every week they would sort of spoof a different genre of filmmaking or a different film or television show. Um, but keeping it all within the confines of the storylines and the characters that were in the show. It was a good uh, Thursday night comedy. I think we did 100 shows together over the years. But um, a loop group is basically a group of actors that's brought in when the film or television shows and in the process of what they call post-production. All the shots have been filmed, uh, all the different angles and the different close-ups and the variety of different shots uh, have been done and put together and edited. Um, and then they bring the actors in to become the environment that's behind the principal actors. If they were to have the extras that were, let's say, in a bar scene or a classroom scene or a cafeteria scene, if they were to have all those extras speaking while they did the medium shot and then into the close-up shot and then, you know, over the shoulders and this and that, more than likely there would be sound idiosyncrasies. The sound would be, uh, 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 you hear all these cuts happening every time they cut from one actor to the next. And so in post-production, they bring in what's called the loop group or a Walla group, you might have heard uh, the name, uh, to, be, to become the people in the background in the environments. And uh, not only do they do all these surrounding people, but if there's like police radios or there's an announcement or there's a particular um, PA or something going on in the environment, the loop group will also cover that. And often the loop group will even cover creatures and animals and um, efforts. So if there's a big fight scene like in uh, Deadpool where Ryan Reynolds is fighting another character, most often because of the cuts and the angles and everything, they'll bring in a loop group to do those efforts. So it'll be all the, <coughs> you know, and you'll hear all those different sounds 
um, from the actors that are brought in on the loop group. Or occasionally we'd be, we do, I remember on community, we'd be background. Uh, one time we, we were a gay basketball team, right? right. You remember? <laughs> yeah, that was I mean, fun. Things that we, I don't know. I actually don't know if a show like that could get pitched, developed and, and picked up today. Do you? <laughs> you know, it's funny because now there's so much content that, that to me stands out as a show that was really inventive. So I don't know if, you know, you pitch that little chunk of the show, it may not get picked up, but in terms of the overall show and the inventiveness of it, I think it still might. You, know. you don't think it's too politically, the environment today is too politically correct and it's all identity politics and people would be offended by the subject matter and the topics and the, no, you know, I don't think so, because I think the entertainment business is always kind of pushing the line in that realm. You know, if you look at the shows that are on Netflix and Amazon, there's there's much more, quote unquote, offensive material that's out there. Even when I audition for animated shows, uh, my agent will send me auditions and then I'll record in my booth. Often I'm like, what? on earth how did these get greenlit you know they're just well yeah they're, they're streamers though i mean the streaming network that you know they're not networks the the broadcast networks have a harder time these days that's right? true yeah the, the, you the can't remain, get away the remaining three. <laughs> oh, there's three now only three <laughs> <laughs> three or four right that's remaining of the real <laughs> networks and everything else is sort of a streamer or just a cable network yeah hey Alex, I, I think it's interesting to to for people to see the faces of the voices in your head and my head can you give us some live examples of some of the voices you perform like how does batman sound uh, how about han solo <clears throat> well let's see batman for example has a voice that's sort of similar to mine but mine's a little higher pitched batman is a little more what we, i would call a glottal voice so um he might talk in here. Alfred, bring the car around front. It's time we see the commissioner. So it might have something like that. Um, uh, Dr. Neo Cortex, for example, which is in the Crash Bandicoot series, uh, is much more flamboyant. He's like, oh yes, bring me, bring me crystals, Crash. That confounded Bandicoot. You know, something like that. <clears throat> And I'm on a show called Curious George, where I play the doorman, and I play his dog Hundley. Um, and the doorman's voice is very different. The doorman sounds like this. Let's go clean the lobby, George. Oh, how about that? We can count to five. You know, it, it has a much more um, whimsical tone to it. Um, who else? Um, War Greymon, for example, from the Digimon. It's a very popular franchise. A lot of people grew up with Digimon. In fact, it, it, it's still going, but like the primary, uh, the primary program hasn't been going for you know fifteen years. But people still are watching it day, day in and day out. War Greymon would be a much more gravelly. War Greymon. Oh, it sounds like this. You know, it sounds kind of uh, tighter and also much more gravelier. Um, when I'm doing um, uh, Soap McTavish in the Call of Duty franchise, he's a guy who talks like this. He's like, let's go there. We'll have to get it later. You know, he's got a Scottish accent and look out, you know. <laughs> and uh, it's fun to do accents. Um, Dr. Doom, when I do that for Marvel, they, they kind of affect it because he's in a helmet. But uh, you are no match for Doom is kind of the tone of Doom. Um, I don't think what else. I like Doom. That reminds me of uh, uh, Dr. Fate for Batman, the Brave and the Bold. He was all, only the hand of Dr. Fate can save us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Dr. Hey, Doom. In, in what ways have you seen the business of voice acting change over the, over the years? Well, certainly there's a lot more content. Um, and I think what's really changed is in terms of an actor, for me is the audition process. Um, when I started, the actor would literally have to have a pager 
for those of you who don't know what that is, it was a little box that we carried around on our hip. And when our agent had a, or anyone wanted to get a hold of us, they would dial this number and put in their phone number and it would beep. They called it a beep, a beeper, a pager. It would like, and you'd look down and uh, you'd see the number and then you'd have to find another thing that is almost obsolete now, a phone booth. <laughs> so you'd go to a phone booth and you, none of us had uh, cell phones or PDAs or anything like that uh, at the time, 24 years ago. And um, you'd go to the phone booth, call your agent, and they'd say, okay, come in at two o'clock. We've got a couple auditions for you. So you'd drive into the agency. Well, nowadays, with email, with cell phones, with, uh, you know, with the iPhones and everything, you could literally be driving somewhere and you get a phone call or a little notification that says you've gotten an email from your agent. And then you, I mean, ideally you would want to be at your home studio, you have a microphone and a laptop, that's really all that you really need nowadays. But having done it for many, many years, I've got a converted closet that basically is a booth where people can record, people being me and my wife, who's also a voice actress, Sandy Fox. So you come um, out of the closet many times a day. I've I've got to go into <laughs> yes, I do. I, I'm constantly coming out of the closet. <laughs> um, but, uh, and then you just uh, bounce it out to an MP3 and shoot it off to your agent. And that way you can do five or six, 10 auditions a day if, if, uh, if you're lucky enough. And, uh, you know, go on with your day without having to take, for example, my agent is about 45 minutes from me on the other side of the hill, which is uh, a Los Angeles term. There's the San Fernando Valley and then there's the Hollywood, Santa Monica, Westwood side, which is on the other side of the, the big mountain range that has three or four um, transit avenues to go over Laurel Canyon and Beverly Glen and Coldwater Canyon. So anyway, I, I avoid having to go over the hill um, day in and day out by just uh, getting the auditions uh, virtually, so to speak. That's the biggest difference, I would say. I want to talk about um, mental health. Um, I know that you are um, a meditation teacher and you have a particular journey yourself that led you there. Um, you know, the term philosophical is a byword for calm, long-term thinking and, and strength of mind in short for empowered perspective do you ever get philosophical um do you ever go deep into thinking or is your meditation a place where you go so you stop the racing thoughts <clears throat> and the the traffic of the noisy disturbance of show business i i would say yes to both um i do get philosophical Mostly when I'm having conversations with friends or I have a, uh, I don't know if I'd call him a life coach, but I have a, a mentor, so to speak, that is older than I am, that's seen more of the world, that has more experience in life, that I meet with once a week for a few hours just to be philosophical with. And we spend time chatting about relationships to other people and to the divine influence and to the infinite organized intelligence that courses through everything and you know we we talk about simple things like um situations in our lives different resentments that we hold and how to release them and and just a variety of topics so yes i get philosophical especially when i meet with with him his name's jack um I get very philosophical. Now, when I meditate, which is every day, um, I, I try to take my mind from very active to much more abstract levels of thinking to where uh, I can become comfortable in the space that's in between the thoughts, which is something that I had a very difficult time initially doing because when I started learning meditation, I was with a very experienced meditator and he sat me down and said, okay, clear your mind of all your thoughts and let's just close our eyes and sit there and just, he called it, let's sit. And 
I thought I couldn't get it right. I was like, I'm having thoughts. I can't stop the thoughts. Every thought I have like parlays into another thought and I just have no idea how to do this. He'd say, well, just focus on your breath. And I would be focusing on my breath and thinking, well, now I'm just thinking about focusing on my breath, which is a thought, which has me thinking about another thought. And I would just cascade over to more thoughts. Um, it wasn't really until I started doing this primordial sound meditation, which is basically a mantra-based meditation. And a mantra is just a, a tone. It doesn't carry enough meaning necessarily to activate your intellectual mind so that you're thinking of it as a thought. Something like om or ah is a, is a primordial sound that you can use as a uh, a tool to divert your attention away from thoughts back to it. Like I, I kind of look at it like a pendulum. On this side, you have your thoughts, your your um, uh, noises in the environment, your emotions, all the things that keep your mental side active. And on this side, you have the uh, the mantra, which is like Om or Ah or both, uh, with a little tiny space in between them. Um, and so. On the Om Ah side, I, you almost think of it as a radio station. And so when you sit, you get comfortable, you let your thoughts dissipate enough to where you can focus on your breath a little, focus on being relaxed. And then for me, I imagine like a, a switch that gets flicked where it turns on almost like a radio station where I'm not forcing or concentrating on saying the mantra, but it starts to happen and I start to hear the mantra. So if we were using Om and Ah, as an example, I would just hear Om, Ah, Om. I'd hear a little space between each of them. And the idea behind that kind of meditation is that when it comes down to where our truest self lives, it, it's outside of our positions in life, the possessions we have in life, the roles we play in life. It's like, what's beyond that? And then it even goes beyond the thinking side of it because we do have thoughts that happen all day long. They happen one after the other, but they start and they finish and they start and then they finish and the next one comes up. And that's why you can have a thought about emailing a friend and then the next thought could be about ice cream or something. You know, it's, it's very, it's infinite. And the idea is you separate that space of thoughts to where the thought is ended and then there's this space where your truest self resides you might say it's called it's called the gap for many meditators but it can be called you know your soul space you know where your higher self lives or whatever and what they've the the wisdom teachers of you know the vedic traditions anyway what they realized is that that space has two very distinct qualities and one is that it's anything can spring from it. So there's infinite possibilities that can rise from that space. And like in the example of the email or calling a friend or eating ice cream or whatever it might be. The other thing they realize is that that particular space is silent. And so if you're saying your mantra, Om, uh, and there's that silent space between, that little space, is where that truest self resides. Now, if you have a thought in between there, then that pendulum has gone over here again. And as soon as you realize, as soon as your attention, you, you realize that you've had a thought or a, a mental activation, you gently bring your attention back over to the mantra. And so that's the basics of, of that type of teaching, um, mm. of, the, of the type that I teach. And it's ba basically me meant so that you can sit in that middle space, the gap. You can sit there for a while. Mm. Let's say you sit and meditate for 30 minutes. Let's even break it down to much, much well, easier. Well, well, I think, I think we, when you talk about that gap, that silence, it reminds me of um, something that Max Picard said, which is silence is not simply what happens when we stop talking. It means more than the mere negative renunciation of language. It's more than simply a condition that we can produce at will. You know, when language ceases, silence begins, but it does not begin because language ceases. 
Right. You know, and the, the absence of language, whether it be an um and ah, or um, the absence of that language simply makes the presence of silence more apparent. Exactly. Silence, is, silence is an autonomous phenomenon. It's therefore not identical with the suspension of language. It's not merely the negative condition that sets in when the, um, when the positive is removed. It's rather an independent whole subsiding in and through itself. It's creative as language, expression, uh, cognition, thought uh, is creative. And it's formative of human beings as language right. is formative but not to the same degree silence begins to the basics well not begins it belongs to the very basic structure of man and it, it's a, it's our ground state it's already there it's the ground state of existence is that silence yeah when you talk when you talk about the um it's interesting you know when i first started to learn um my meditation practices um, and move towards moving meditation, which is my preference. Um, Qigong is my specific area where I like to practice every day. Um, I, I had a friend and we called it the Umja. And the Umja was A-U-M, um, uh, accept, understand meaning. And the Um was just an exhale. It was Um, and the Ja was Ja. Because we found ourselves when we were talking and being positive or excited or interested in each other's conversation and expression, just this this verbal um, non-linguistic of mm, and it was the mja mm, and that mm of the the breath tone coming down and then the ja of the exhale, which is almost like a, a momentary pause of meditation, a split second meditation on the move through the breath. And I think right. we can find those, those gaps, those moments, wherever we look for them. I agree. I agree. Like I said, it, I, I, I really think that if you allow yourself to get out of the way and you bring yourself, whether it's through motion or through mantra or through breath awareness or even a flame of a candle you know or sitting at the beach if, if you allow your thoughts to become more abstract that will become present that that silence or that that essence of what you just described will will make itself shown mm. so we talk about mental health or as i like to call it mental wealth or <laughs> mind wellness um, the word mental is somewhat of a negative connotation or perception in the public lexicon sometimes, particularly when it's viewed or used in conjunction with health. Perhaps destigmatization of the word itself will happen if we evolve new words and phrases. Um, not sure if you agree with that. I've been re recently working with, uh, with the Global Wellness Institute on an initiative mm. called the MindWell Project. Nice. Um, immediate interventions to impact well-being with a phenomenological pedagogy to influence the growth of learners. Wow. How did you find your way into learning more about your chosen area of meditation? Well, uh, that was also like a journey that was, you know, divinely inspired. Um, you know, they say inspiration is in spirit. So if you're inspired by something, that's always kind of a good precursor to a path that will unfold in a positive way. Um, my wife, Sandy, and I started a, a natural spring water company called H2OM. And uh, it was through a very a set of incredible synchronistic events that led to a very powerful dream that I had. Uh, where I actually saw a, uh, a banner in a, like a pitch black room. I was asleep and I sat up in bed and I saw a giant banner that said H2 Ohm, water with intention. And I saw words like love, gratitude, prosperity, joy, peace, uh, things like that kind of flying at me. And she got up and we said, we need to, we need to follow that because that doesn't happen every day that you sit up and you actually see something else that's happening in your room. It was kind of like a waking dream. She didn't see it, but I described it to her and we, we researched 
you know, trademarks and all the different, you know, on the, on the internet, Googled all the key phrases that I had seen and it had never been. In fact, now it's right here, H2OM, water with intention. That's what I was drinking. Um, but we, we got the company going and after a few years, we had some real great milestones like being written up in Time Magazine and um, uh, being at this Sting's uh, Rainforest Foundation event as the water. He got like a pallet of love water for all the people backstage. And, and we were in Whole Foods and a few other places. And we had tried to reach out to Deepak Chopra because he had a, um, a program called the Perfect Health Program um, where it was all about intention and the power of now. And But the person who was in charge of his um, programming at the time even though we had a water that was called perfect health they didn't see the connection <laughs> we're like it's perfect health water with intention think it while you drink it it's all about health and ohm and h2om and for some reason it wasn't time for that um but about and i was actually i wanted to steer the universe right into the show center. you know i was like come on you got to see it and I was very, <laughs> I was very discouraged when they were like, well, don't see the connection, you know, and I was like, I can't believe it. Are these people actually meditating who work for him? You know, I was like, I didn't, I didn't get it. And, um, but a few months <laughs> later, um, the head of all their programming called us kind of independently, I guess, and said, well, why aren't you our water? And we said, well, we called, we tried for you know three weeks straight to get through to the woman who was in charge at the time. He said, no, 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 that's a different thing. Let's, let's get you in. And so we became the, the water for the Chopra Center in Carlsbad at the Omni uh, La Costa Resort. And um, having had that connection, we, we participated in a few of the events that they had there. One was called The Weekend Within, where you go and you learn how to meditate. and you, You're given a mantra that's very specific to your date of birth. Um, then we did one called the Seduction of Spirit, which is a five-day program where you really dig deep into looking at all the different levels of awareness and um, levels of consciousness, you know, from the deepest sleep to the dream state to the waking state to um, transcending the waking state in meditation to like the super transcendence and, um, and then the universal state of consciousness, which is... Um, a little different um but anyhow we did that and then we did what's called their perfect health program which is a one week program and there you go and you learn about eating right and you know vegetarian and like all the all the different things that affect the human body to keep it healthy and while we were there uh, we had an opportunity to meet deepak chopra and while we were talking to him um you know, we talked about different things we could do with the water brand. And at one point he said, I want you to, I have a gift for you. I'm going to give you both a gift. I have a two-year program where we will, you will study with me personally and you will study with my teachers and uh, you will become meditation teachers. And so I was like, oh my God, that's fantastic. <laughs> So both my wife and I became meditation instructors. We did the two-year program and we did the, the, the it, it culminates to like a three-week on-campus uh, testing and, you know, pretty hardcore uh, education in terms of the Vedic studies. And, and that, was the, that was, that was um, where you learned primordial sound meditation. I mean, Correct. yeah. So as, as a voice actor, uh, you have to be intimately attuned with your instrument. Yeah. Do you, you know, that notion of listening to yourself while you speak, um, I, I want to play a short video about sound verbal behavior and how we might listen to our effective carrier wave when we are speaking. And then we're going to talk about it. Okay, here it is. Sure. Hi, my name is Maximus Pepperkamp. I'm going to talk with you about sound verbal behavior and I brought this gong with me today to demonstrate to you what sound verbal behavior is all about. So when I hit this gong, you hear a sound. Now when I speak, you also hear a sound. 
Now, when I hear this gong, you are probably listening to the sound of this gong very easily and you kind of feel like, you know, most people when I demonstrate this gong to them, they say, oh, it sounds good, it sounds pleasant, peaceful, uh, meditative, or they have, I don't know, associations with, I don't know, meditation or prayer or church or something spiritual, you know, it sounds resonant, it's calming. Well, the same way that we can listen to the sound of this gong, we can also listen to our own sound, the sound of our voice while we speak. And we can speak with a resonant sound. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, I sound like this gong and I listen to my own sound while I speak. So everybody can do this. It is easy. It is very uh, effortless. You don't need to try it. You have probably already done it. But you never knew that this is the effect that occurs when you listen to yourself while you speak. Now, if I do not listen to myself while I speak, then my sound changes. And most of our communication is, is a communication in which we do not listen to ourselves while we speak. And what happens then is we sound different. And this is how they sound like in most communication. Oh la la, that's not at all sounding pleasant at all. This sounds aversive, this sounds held back, this sounds tight, this sounds tense. And this is exactly what we sound like when we are anxious and stressed and worried and frustrated. Then our voice changes, then our voice becomes an aversive stimulus, which non-verbally influences the listener. So, it is crucially important to take these pins of the gong here, like I'm doing right now, and to go back again to sound verbal behavior. Because it is only in sound verbal behavior that we can feel completely at ease and that we can understand very easily what the speaker is saying. And it doesn't matter whether the speaker is a teacher who talks with his student or a parent who is talking with his children or a mother who talks with her child or a husband who talks with his wife or a boss who is talking with his uh, employees. Everybody can have sound verbal behavior under all sorts of circumstances but for this to happen we need to learn to listen to ourselves while we speak because if we don't do this and I will demonstrate it one more time then we will have a different kind of communication and unfortunately this is the communication that we are used to and that we are conditioned by it sounds like this it sounds horrible and so this is what I call noxious verbal behavior okay so our voice changes our voice becomes coercive our voice becomes pushy yeah we need to be able to speak with our natural sound and this is not a sound that we're trying to make no this is the sound we naturally make when we feel at ease and when we reinforce each other's well-being while we talk so that was maximus peppercamp um he's a very interesting quirky fellow uh, with quite an interesting practice the resonance of our timbre and tone um, you know, makes me think about the significance of soma as it pertains to how we humans express ourselves. Um, a few years back, I started exploring and learning about expression, experience, and emotion. I called it into the power of three, empowering experience, expression, and emotion. Mm. And watching this fellow's work reminded me of the similarities between the individual expression of the spoken word and the intonation as we speak. Uh, or one might say our spoken harmonies. Because in a sense, we sing when we speak. I mean, I could say that same line, say, as in a sense, we sing when we speak. Right. And there's no intonation in it. Um, more specifically, how, how we can actually listen to our own voice. Have you listened to your own voice inside, you know, the inner timbre of the voice? I think so. You know, I'm not always like cognizant of, of it as it's happening, but I know how it feels, especially like, you know, I, I don't know if they, um, 
he's got several clips uh, Maximus Eppercamp does on there, and I've, I've watched a few of them. And one of them, he talks about, you know, when when we're feeling insecure or when we have something to prove, our our tones take on a different state. You know, he was showing with the clips on that clip you showed, um, but. Um, I, I know what that feels like when I feel out of my element a little bit or out of my vocal element or out of my security element, maybe is a better way to put it. My voice will take on other, uh, other tones and it, it, it sort of, regardless of what the content of what I'm saying is, it, it sort of comes off as either insecure or um, not sure of myself, you know, and I, I can, I can feel when that's happening, you know. I do you think feel most like you, of, do you feel like, excuse me, do you feel like you have uh, a more split sense of self because there are so many voices in your head? <laughs> what you do for a living? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm in a padded room with, and I talk to myself in a lot of different voices. Um, <laughs> well, because we do, we do have, you know, through through my coaching with a live coaching, I talk about the craft in process, which is the C and the B is the business of show and the A is the art in flow. And we have the experience that comes from, you know, working on jobs over years, decades, and within a certain industry. But then in our industry as artists, we have to, there's that moment where we have to let go, continuously find that place to let go so the imagination can effortlessly take over. And many times we're relying just on trusting our self, uh, that sense of self that says, you know what, I, the inner critic may come up. There may be a moment that says, can you? Not even says you can't do this, but questions it, you know? Mm-hmm. And you just have to, you have to go there. You have to take that. Um, and I, I guess that's the right brain, um, the right brain hemisphere that um, Jordan Peterson and Emma Gilchrist in their YouTube talk talked about um, the right brain hemisphere, I like to call the body brain, uh, that opens up to possibilities. I like to think of it as Esther Burrell uh, talks about desire and love. I, I, I like to think of the right brain as desire, the need for novelty, spontaneity, adventure, the right brain opens up, it's analogous, it opens up to possibility in the human life right. I become this. And then the left brain um, that Ian McGilchrist talks about, the left brain hemisphere being order. So Jordan Peterson might say, might say the right brain is chaos and the left brain is order. And that order, the left brain closes down to a certainty. And we're continually closing down to those certainties, those, those thoughts through the day, those tasks that we arrive at, that we complete. And how we move through that order, that reason, that knowledge, that, and, I, and Esther Burrell talks about love, and I think of the left brain as love, that consistency, that sense of dependency, that sense of knowing that um, everything is routinized and safe and secure over and over again. We're closing down to certainties, opening them up to possibilities. So I'm gonna show a quick clip anyway before I waffle on for the next hour about the right brain hemisphere and the left brain hemisphere. The division of the brain is something neuroscientists don't like to talk about anymore. It enjoyed a sort of popularity in the 60s and 70s um, after the first split brain operations and it led to a sort of popularization um, which has since been proved to be entirely false. Um, it's not true that one part of the brain does reason and the other does emotion. Both are profoundly involved in both. It's not true that language resides only in the left hemisphere. It doesn't. Important aspects are in the right. It's not true that visual imagery is only in the right hemisphere. Lots of it is in the left. And so in a sort of fit of despair, people have given up talking about it. But the problem won't really go away because this organ, which is all about making connection, is profoundly divided. It's there inside all of us. And it's got more divided over the course of human evolution. 
So the, the ratio of the corpus callosum to the volume of the hemispheres has got smaller over evolution. And the plot thickens when you realize that one of the main, if not the main, function of the corpus callosum is in fact to inhibit, is to inhibit the other hemisphere. So something very important is going on here about keeping things apart from one another. And not only that, the brain is profoundly asymmetric. It's broader uh, at the back on the left and broader on the right at the front and slightly juts forward and backward. Um, and it's as though somebody got hold of the brain from underneath and given it a sort of sharp twist clockwise. What is all that about? If one just needed more brain space, one would do it symmetrically. The skull is symmetrical. The box in which all this is contained is symmetrical. Why go to trouble to expand some bits of one hemisphere and some bits of another unless they were doing rather different things? What are they doing? Well, it's not just we who have these divided brains. Birds and animals have them as well. I think the simplest way to think of it is if you imagine a bird trying to feed on um, a, a seed against the background of of grit or pebbles. It's got to focus very narrowly and clearly on that little seed and be able to pick it out against that background. But it's also, if it's going to stay alive, it's got to actually keep a, a quite different kind of attention open. It's got to be on the lookout for predators uh, or for friends, for conspecifics, but for whatever else is going on. Now, it seems that birds and animals quite reliably use their left hemisphere for this narrow focused attention to something it already knows is of importance to it and they keep their right hemisphere vigilant broadly for whatever might be without any commitment as to what that might be and they also use their right hemispheres for making connections with the world so they approach their mates and bond with their mates more using the right hemisphere but then you come to the humans and uh, it's true that actually in humans too, this kind of attention um, is one of the big differences. The right hemisphere gives sustained, broad, open vigilance, alertness, where the left hemisphere gives narrow, sharply focused attention to detail. And people who lose their right hemispheres have a pathological narrowing of the window of attention. So interesting. What what? Lex, what do you think um, about, you know, as being an artist and expressing yourself through your voice, through your instruments, um, whether it be your fingers playing the guitar or piano or your, your, your vocal cords, about this left brain hemisphere, right brain hemisphere, and, and, and how that aligns with um, how you work, meditation, the yin and the yang, the push and the pull, the rupture repair, the, the rise and fall, the gaps in between. Uh, what does that, does that speak to you? It does. It does very much so, you know, and I think that one of the concepts that I've been practicing more frequently and more recently as well is you've got the left brain and the right brain and they're both doing their various, um, characteristics of working you know as you as you so eloquently put before we watch the clip um, but there's also a third factor for me when I'm working and that is you know you mentioned mental health you know it's got a sort of a um, is it a stigma that's attached to it that you know it's like it has uh, negative connotations even uh, when when you mentioned mental health you know um, same with the phrase going out of your mind. <laughs> um, like I try <laughs> to, <laughs> I try to go out of my mind sometimes, uh, when I'm, uh, anytime I'm trying to be creative, I really try to go out of my mind because the right and left are fighting for, you know, dominance and they're trying to like put the creativity, but yet the, the balance that it wants the chaos of the yeah. spark, spark of creativity, but then it also wants the order of how something should be, whether it be music or whether it be acting or a performance of any kind. But We're then, always going out of our mind. Go ahead, finish off. Yeah, yeah, no, but I said, I think for me, I try to really give stage time or, you know, the time to the part of ourselves that is the infinite organized intelligence. Like there's a, I call it the IOI, and it's like the infinite organized intelligence. It's the same intelligence 
in in a uh, an acorn that knows there will with the right conditions that the oak tree will come from it you know the same conditions that are inside our bodies that know when we eat a piece of fruit we don't have to make a phone call to our pancreas in order to have the correct secretions happen for the proper digestions there's an organized intelligence that's working with every cell in our body and it goes to the deepest levels of of um, oh my dog's dreaming behind me i don't know if you can hear me well you might hear my dog <laughs> you know you I talk about going out of my mind um it, she is. <laughs> so okay yeah yeah but but yeah I, I try to keep that in mind when i'm doing anything <clears throat> i want to give it equal time because that infinite organized intelligence that runs the inner side of ourselves and that runs all of the universe at the same time you know we don't have to call the moon to make sure it doesn't crash into the earth um, you know, there's another there's another thing spot uh, feature contributor called Akira the Don, and uh, he recently what is interviewed it? Akira the Don. He's a musician, mind wave musician, um, and he creates wonderful pieces of orchestrated um, electronic um, sound um, combinations that combine DJ music with philosophical sampled quotes and when you talk about and he talked about being in a zone and finding that zone for me it's it's flow for me it's flow states felt senses and flow states and the combination of uh, as an artist and i have my own methodology of, of where i go to and how i get there mm -hmm. and my practices um but you talk about going out of my mind it reminds me of alan watts a wonderful philosopher who wrote i went out of my mind and then came back to my senses right. by meeting a crow who mixed up his tenses, who modeled <laughs> distinctions of nouns and of verbs and insisted that logic is bad for the birds. With a poo-wee clock and a chit-chit-chit, the grammar and meaning don't matter a bit. The stars in their courses have no destination. The train of events will arrive at no station. The inmost and utmost self of us all is dancing on nothing and having a ball. So with chit for chat and with tat for tit, this will be that and that will be it. That's great. And it's the it. Mm. You know, I, I, I've talked about this before with them. Um, I do a series of... Uh, wiser life practices um videos with an epistemologist called dr gary david and we talk about the it what is it you know how we use language um the it when we say it is raining what is raining rain is raining so right. raining well back in the day we just used to point and say raining <laughs> and we wouldn't even say rain <laughs> you know the the weather was the gods so um, right. For me, it is is happening. That's what I would translate it as. So rain is happening. Right. Anytime I think of the it, I try and re remind myself that it is a happening. Right. That's very good. I like um, that. What would you say, we talk about meaning and the meaning you found for your journey to... Um, find meditation i like to define meaning as everything happens for a reason we make up afterwards right um, what would you say is the meaning of your life the meaning of my life hmm. well you know i always kind of i think it's an opportunity to let me think let me think a little deeper than the meaning of my life i think it's um you know when i when i do my meditation i part of the practice that i teach is you you do it with what you call the four soul questions that come to you before you actually sit down to get into the meditation to get into that gap that was described earlier you ask yourself four questions <clears throat> and the first question is who am i like, who am I really, you know, beyond the positions and the possessions and all that? And, and 
different answers come to you each day. You know, one day it might be, I am love, I am light, I am the happening, you know, I am the meaning of, of existence. And other days it might be more like, I am an actor, I am a brother, I am a son, you know, it could be the positions again. And then the second question is, what would I like to see fulfilled? And the idea behind that is before you get to that infinite possibility gap that we talked about was between the thoughts, that was that ground state of silence that we were talking about. Like that's a fertile ground. That's that's a ground that if you if you could fill up your own acorn, what would you put in it? And it could be material or spiritual or ethereal or physical or um, emotional. Like, what would you put into that acorn that you throw into the fertile ground while you're sitting there meditating? So, you know, it could be anything. Like, I, I'd like to do more Star Wars related things. I'd like to have good health. You know, I'd like to see the fulfillment of all my relationships being filled with compassion and joy and peace and love you know it could be every time you meditate it's a different answer so meaning third, is movement oh go ahead no no i was just gonna say the third question though relates directly to the question you asked which is what is my dharma or my purpose in life and the sort of subset of the question is how can i use my unique gifts and abilities and my unique expression as a human being on this planet right now to help myself and others like how can i give how can i serve you know and and it doesn't always have to be giving and serving always to others it, you can use it to help yourself and others it, it can be something that strengthens it's giving this giving this driven as i like to say when i find forgiveness for self when i've had i strive <clears throat> forgiveness yeah and then the last question, the fourth of the four, is what am I grateful for? Because when you get in that state, it, it, it kind of reconnects you with the higher self. Because there's an, you know, they say the attitude of gratitude is a great attitude and, and it's a great foundation to have. But it really does help bring you into perspective, your life into perspective. So what is the meaning of my life or what, what, why am I here on this planet? You know, I think it's a combination of the answers of all of those questions, as well as to be an expression of this infinite organized intelligence that's unique to me while being a contributor to the rest of the expression, you know? So that's, that's kind of the broader answer while defining it as much as I can, you know? If, be, if you could, it's a big question, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I've had some very interesting answers. Um, me, meaning is malleable and moving. If you, if you could write your epitaph, what would you want it to say? Um, that's an interesting one, too. I, you know, you don't think about those things very often. Um, you know, probably... He was here, present, was a, a beacon of light and love to those, to, to all, you know, something to that effect was like, was, was here and present and grateful, you know, something. You know, because I, I know in my life, you know, everybody has a different experience. Obviously, their lives are so varied, you know. I mean, I, I feel so blessed to have followed a path long enough to you know as a meditator and as a voice actor to where you know i'm going on a quarter century of of having done this as my career and you know there's just that alone is a a great reason to wake up and say oh my god i'm so grateful for today so grateful that my actions led me to other Synchro destiny events, you know, Deepak Chopra coined find that a, term. Find, a, find a career in which you can get paid to play. And yeah. you play with your breath and you play with your mind and your imagination and the wise dome in, inside your imagination. And you tell stories and mm -hmm. um, you, you're brilliant at what you do. Um, so yeah. I want to I I round up by asking you, are there any 
projects that you're working on at the moment or what can we see you that's see you in that's that's coming up let's see um there's a few that i can't talk about but um that's the nature of the beast sometimes is that we we do our job and then we can't talk about it um um stuff that's happening right now uh, of course there's curious george on uh, i think it's on hulu and pbs now i play the doorman and his dog hundley uh there's the crash bandicoot franchise where i play dr cortex who i did a little of a voice earlier um star wars resistance i play major von reg and he's kind of one of the bad guys in that show um i was lucky enough again like i say blessed enough to have done the loop group for the rise of skywalker so as stormtroopers are being killed off and you see little creatures and little um, aliens uh, i was blessed enough to do some of those voices um what else am i doing right now um like i, I mentioned the uh, call of duty uh franchise i play soap mctavish the scottish commander that uh in call of duty mobile um, and, you know, there's various anime that have come out. I play uh, Goimon in Lupin the Third, which is a popular anime that's out. And um, what else? It yeah, sounds like, it sounds like you have a very busy 2020 already on your hands. Yeah, you know, like I said, I, I really wake up and I, I'm so grateful for the opportunities. And I try to get out of my mind when I start feeling less than or I start feeling like you know you know social media I try to do less and less of because the Facebook dilemma so to speak is kind of twofold but one of the dilemmas it has is that it creates a comparative state of being and you'll see people posting their joys and their and their um best versions of themselves the best, the best moments in themselves the best the best mm. of the presented version the presented I call it, version i call it anti-social media and device dependency and reverse psychology and modernity that's why that's why i i, I encourage people to find their way to think spot and if you like what you see subscribe to my channel and help me continue to have conversations like this with you today Lex. thank you very much for being yes. here thank well, you thank for sharing you. some of the voices in your head yes thank you it was great to be here thanks everybody for watching be well you too